Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Nation. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 88. In this episode, we begin our long-anticipated interview with Father James Altman, pastor of St. James the Less Catholic Church in La Crosse, Wisconsin. If you think his homilies are moving, you're going to love this. You know a great actor can make you think he's someone he's not. I once saw a movie where Tom Selleck, you know, Police Commissioner Ryan in Blue Bloods and Magnum in Magnum P.I., played General Dwight Eisenhower. The two men couldn't be more different, yet Selleck was so good from the first scene, he had me convinced he was Eisenhower. Some really good preachers are the same way. They're great actors. Remember Jim Baker from the PTL Club many years ago? He had millions of people across the country convinced he was a sincere Christian evangelist, but he ended up in federal prison. Or Father Carapi, who had Catholics willing to follow him through hell in gasoline pajamas, only to end up stealing money those Catholics gave him while having an affair and finally leaving the priesthood? Well, Father Altman isn't one of those types of people. As Father talks in this interview, and you get to know the personal side of this good and faithful priest, I think you're going to discover how genuine this priest actually is, and you'll love him all the more. I usually promote one of my books here, but from now on until the election, I'm going to run this. I have absolutely no doubt that President Trump will win re-election in a landslide victory on November the 3rd. However, and I pray I'm wrong, on November 4th, we'll see a level of violence that hasn't been seen in America since the Civil War in 1861. Certainly, we need to pray for God's mercy and protection, but we must also prepare. I'm begging you to spend the month of October building up your food reserves. If I'm right about the violence, it may be weeks before you'll be able to shop for any essentials, especially food. Be cautious, stay safe, and pray a lot. I asked Father Altman to share with us his journey to the priesthood. As a lead-in to telling us about his call to the world's most sublime vocation, Father gave us what I think is the most moving presentation on pastoral philosophy I've ever heard. I wish all priests had Father's philosophy and attitude. I genuinely believe God's positioning him to be the next Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Let's listen. Hey, Six Packers, this is the interview you've been waiting for. We've got Father James Altman on the phone. He's the pastor of St. James the Less Catholic Church in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Most of you are familiar with Father Altman from his homilies on YouTube and his frequent appearances on various online media. The reason you like him, the reason you follow him online, is because he's beyond a doubt the most courageous priest out there today. But few of you know anything about Father beyond his homilies. One of the reasons for interviewing him today is so you six-packers can get to know him better. Father Altman, welcome to the Cantankerous Catholic. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, you give me a lot of credit, it seems, but uh, it's all 
you know, I somehow I didn't um, seek out any uh, fame. Fame, that's for sure. It, it started out, you know, there was only maybe forty-five, maybe people. Just a few people were were watching on because we, you know, we had to start live streaming because we weren't allowed to have people in the church. And then all of a sudden, somehow, it's uh, yeah, a lot of people are watching. So glory be to God uh, for whatever truth is spoken. Um, yeah. And we're probably going to talk about that here shortly. Father, I really thank you for being here. It's always a privilege to speak with a priest of the living God, but it's an honor to talk to you because you're a real Catholic hero to both my audience and me. You know, the most outspoken defender of the Catholic faith in the English-speaking world is Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke. <laughs> yes, he is. He's such a towering intellect that much of what he says is missed by many of the ordinary Catholics. But you and Joe Sixpack are cut from the same cloth and that we're both able to communicate with ordinary Catholics in a way they can understand and appreciate. Of course, the biggest difference in our styles is that you're far more refined than I am. Oh. <laughs> Father Sixpackers tell me they really want to know you apart from your homilies. Will you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to the priesthood? Sure. Um, well, I had a, a thanks be to God, uh, mother and father of faith, and, and there was never a time that uh, that I didn't know uh, that faith was primary in our lives. I went to a, they sacrificed greatly uh, for me to go to a Catholic school as a little kid. I have to say, so. Uh, it, it was a, it was a school in Toledo, Ohio, and uh, I was there through seventh grade. And and every story, every like myth you hear about nuns that were fearsome. And <laughs> <laughs> honestly, if I, it made my initial life so unpleasant. If that was had been my only experience, I don't I don't know what what I would have done about being Catholic because I was. Uh, School was so unpleasant, and I was so afraid of them. I started school when I was really little, so I was kind of bullied a lot too, and and that they didn't help. But uh, so, um, but then I had these these glorious nuns in contrast in uh, my mom's hometown of San Ignace, Michigan, and uh, I went to the convent school that she went to. Uh, the end of third and fourth grade, we we went back up from Toledo up to northern Michigan a month before school let out both those years, and, and up there we called them. Um, we didn't call them sister. We called them mother. So I had Mother Michaela in third grade, mother or Mother Matthias in third grade, Mother Michaela in fourth. And I'll tell you that I, by calling them mother, I think it it just had this different um, effect on them. And I think they looked at us at the children like they were their moms, and and they loved us. And I saw in just that short period of time with them, God's love. And and I I suppose and that would be the foundation of my. Uh, my experience with Catholicism outside my outside my you know my immediate family, and then um, you know I'll, I'll say too that there's I've heard from so many uh, people and uh, and even priests and seminarians how there were periods of time in their life where they had I guess the phrase is fallen away from the church they they just quit going to church or something like that and but whatever grace um, special grace God uh, somehow uh, gave me uh, it's all credit to Him the, there was never a time when when I just wasn't compelled to uh, keep the Lord's day holy, and that that does mean I make a joke about it. It means 24 hours, not 55 minutes, and get mad at Father's homilies a little long. Uh, the um, and it wasn't because I was afraid like um, that I'd be struck by lightning if I didn't go. Uh, God would be 
mad. Uh, but there, I can count on one hand and not use all the fingers of times where I intentionally just said, oh, to heck with that, I'm not going today, and regretted the decision the very same day. And <laughs> uh, there was, because what happened is, okay, so people eat. You know, they don't, they don't I don't see in America too many people going without their food. True. We feed our bodies, right? Well, uh, keeping the Lord's Day holy, going to Mass, that, that feeds our soul. And so with those rarest occasions when, like I said, I can count them on one hand and that I didn't go, I, I realized that my soul was starving. And, and what in the world was I thinking? Kind of an idea. <laughs> so, so I never, there was never time when I didn't want to go. And then, so somehow that also, um, kind of, uh, inspired me, uh, in college, I would go to retreats. Uh, in fact, when I was 16, I would drive uh, with my parents uh, to about a 50 miles north into Sioux, Canada, and go to charismatic prayer meetings there. And and, uh, and it still is seemingly beyond me, but there, I just knew there was holiness there, and there was prayer, and and it was uh, an attraction. Is that a good word for it? It was yeah, I think so. Drawing to it. Uh, the depth of holiness, that genuine prayer, communion with God. Uh, when I was in college, I went to retreats, and I started teaching CCD when I was in college. I didn't, not too many collegians really tend to do that, but the ones that do, you can just say, well, you can see the grace around them. It surrounds them. And, and uh, then when I was in uh, when I was in business school, I went to the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Business. I taught confirmation while I was there uh, in the local parish in, in, in Ann Arbor. And then when I was in law school, I taught confirmation when I was in law school, and then when I was a lawyer, I would also taught CCD and stuff. So I was always involved in education. I love being a teacher. Maybe that comes out in the homilies. Maybe that's why I do all that I do and work so hard to prepare, uh, because this teacher in me needs to teach. Um, <laughs> I know that I feeling, sem- too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, when I was a seminarian, uh, I taught. I, I got to teach church history to eighth graders. And I would be up till two, two thirty in the morning preparing for a lesson for eighth graders, uh, <laughs> so that I could teach. Um, so that, that I guess is just how God made me. And, uh, so there's never a time I was away from the church, uh, and, but, but having said all that, uh, my deep inspiration within me too was I wanted to have 13 children. Wow. And, uh, I used to dream about coming home and walking in the front door after work and all the little ones would come running up, daddy's home, and I'd be <laughs> tripping over all their shoes. And, and I could look down at their shoes and I could say, they're home. My kids are here. <laughs> and that still um, is like part of my soul. Uh, and so if if you understand that, you're going to understand why it was such a devastating blow. I don't, uh, I don't think, can I say this? Not that bishops, so many of them, don't get it. When they locked the churches, they denied the priests, not just the people, to get the sacraments, which is, which is damnable. But the priests also didn't get to be with their family. I mean, the whole point, the charism of a parish priest is to love his family as if they're his own family, because that's all he gets. And to me, to, to, to go out into the sanctuary, and we were at least, thanks be to God, Bishop Callahan let us have, you know, uh, a few people in there, as was allowed by the government. Uh, ironically, a thousand people in Walmart, but only nine in the, in the <laughs> church here that fits twelve hundred people. Right? Right. And that isn't discrimination. I, I, if I haven't, if I'm incensed against some in the episcopacy, it's that they didn't step. Protestant pastors stood up and fought against it. 
I don't recall a single instance where a Catholic bishop in the United States stood up and said to the government, you can't discriminate. If you can allow a thousand people in Walmart, you, you gotta allow an equal amount, you know, a, a comparable amount in my church. And the only priest I saw do it was from the SSPX. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw that too. Exactly. So, so I, when I got off track there, my point was that, that when the priest goes out and he can't see his people out there, that's a blow to him too, because they're his children. You know, it's like, I, I love feeding babies. I could do this all day long. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, to feed my children of all ages at the communion rail, to feed them the bread of life, the one thing that nourishes and sustains us, without which we don't have life within us, to deny people that, to deny the priest the right to do that, that is, that is unconscionable, inconceivable. Uh, yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna answer for that one. Father, I really wish all priests had your attitude about uh, what it is to be a pastor, what it is to be a priest. I honestly, and I've been a Catholic for 32 years, and I've known a lot of very good priests, but I have never heard a priest uh, have that sort of attitude toward being a priest, being a, uh, a pastor. I think that's marvelous. I am, in fairness, I do know a lot of priests that have the heart that I do, but they're stuck with uh, leadership that denied them the right to do it. And that's why, that's why I think it's been 24, 25 times I've said, I praise Bishop Callahan because he allowed his priests, the ones that would, and some didn't, uh, to be a pastor to his people. I can tell you, this is a story that I think helps to understand. Because I, I also got calls from priests that I know, from seminary days, friends that I've had from even around the country, many other dioceses, call me up and, and the lamentation of, that they had was that, They've not been allowed to have people in their in their church for 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 several months, so three four months. Uh, the blow to them, the wound to their heart was you could hear it in in their words and in, in their tone. That so I I do know many priests, many good priests who are simply denied by cowards in the episcopacy, and they don't like to hear it when I say that. Well, you know what, <laughs> tough. Yeah, who are they to say that they're, that they're infallible or they're beyond reproach? That's right. I mean, what what pride and arrogance is that? You're right. They all cower together, the little band of brothers. You know, protect each other. Boy, squash like a bug. Anybody who speaks up and speaks out. But you know what? They didn't do their job, and the people know it. <laughs> You're absolutely correct, Father. You know, something uh, you mentioned earlier that you very much have in common with Cardinal Burke you said you started out as an attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, attorney, well, you know, I'm not well, a real big fan. He's, he's a canon lawyer par excellence. He's like the best in the world. Yes, he is. Yeah. But I've, you know, I've never been a big fan of attorneys. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can make jokes about attorneys because I am one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that being the case, though, why on earth did you leave a legal practice or whatever it was you were doing as an attorney to become a priest. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a true story. Um, I never looked at the priesthood as a positive. I didn't even look at it as a neutral. I looked at it as a negative because it meant no intimacy, no, uh, no children. I wasn't joking when I said 13 and how I used to dream of walking in and tripping over the shoes and hockey skates. Um, so, that was my whole life was revolving around kind of hopefully one day my wildest imagination to make this come true. 
Um, and, uh, the, uh, you know, God knows us. We don't like to admit it. Cause you always hear, oh, he knows you better than you know yourself. And you're thinking, yeah, 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 that's <laughs> like piety, but, but he does. Uh, and, uh, even when the call came and I thought, okay, well, the last thing, if I had to do this, God, the, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was be a parish priest. But he knew my heart. He knew my love for feeding my children. So, in fact, I can tell you, I don't want to get off track there about the call, but um, I can tell you the single saddest day, uh, my entire priesthood, which is now 12, over 12 years. Uh, and it was the day that I got transferred from my parish for about nine years and had to feed my children for the last time. And it still bothers me. What was the reason for the separation, Father? Well, it, oh, you, you, we could take an hour and, and just talk about that. Um, That's all right. We can they, make this two or three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it, it didn't used to be this way in, in the presbyterate, that uh, priests would be in one place. One of my pastors here before me in this particular parish was here for like 40 years. They've named the church hall after him, Murphy Hall. Wow. That's the way it used to be. And the reason why that's important is because when a priest is in the same place for a long time, it's good for three key reasons. One, donations. It's not, I needed a new ceiling, a new roof on this house and on the school. It was leaking horribly for, th well, more than three years. And, and the, the, the roof is, like the ceiling is falling down over my head in my bedroom and the windows and stuff. But, you know, the, the sanctuary came first in my book. Uh, right. You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And, and uh, anyway, so uh, let's say I need money now to, to fix the roof. Well, if the priest, if the people know, if I've been there long enough and the people know I love them, they're going to say, well, okay, well, bad time, but, but Father wouldn't ask us. I never ask for money. So if Father's asking for money, it must mean he really needs it. And we know he loves us. And so donations will come in. So to, to, to not have a priest in a long period of time, to not build up that relationship as father to family, you heard donations. We always understood this until Vatican II, after Vatican II. Then um, for vocations, everybody knows that the priest in the same place for a long time, uh, sure there's always challenges. There are good days, bad days, mostly good. But when you have a priest who loves what he does and loves his family, kids, grow, boys growing up, Look at that and say, see, being a priest isn't that bad of an idea. This guy's happy. He's, <laughs> he loves. Because that's ultimately what, you know, God is love. That's, isn't that the first thing out of the Baltimore Catechism? And, and he represents God is love. And that is an attraction. It's a beautiful thing. So everybody knows that a priest in the place for the long period of time, vocations increase. So you, if you move priests around, you transfer them all over the place all the time. You hurt donations, you hurt vocations. What you also do, though, maybe worst of all, is by transferring priests, you hurt the faith. Because here's the thing. A lot of times, like a parent, you have to give your children the tough message. I remember when I was a kid, and my my mom and dad say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <laughs> and I got, you know, spanked. I think, yeah, I don't believe that. Now I'm older, I understand it. <laughs> but... But the fact is, every now and then you got to give the tough message. Uh, if the people they, they they don't like to hear it any more than a kid does, but if they know if they know you love them, then they'll then they'll take it. They'll say, "Okay, uh, I don't like it. Uh, it's gonna it's just a struggle for me to accept it." But I know he's not just you know a jerk. 
he loves us. And he wouldn't be telling us the truth if he didn't want us to know the truth because the truth is what gets us to heaven. So you, so the, otherwise, if, if you're, if you're just in a place for a short period of time, you, you want the people to like you and, and you're worried if you say the wrong thing, you say the, they give the tough message, they're gonna not like you, uh, you'll fear for donations, um, that, that's, that's what destroys faith because you don't get the fullness of the faith, you don't get the fullness of the truth of the faith because, because the people don't know you love them. You're not there long enough for them to really come to understand the reason you're saying what you're saying is because you love them. So you destroy donations, vocations, and you destroy faith with all this transferring around. Well, here's what happened after Vatican II, just one of the many, many errors, is that they got this idea. Here's, here's the, the narrative. Well, we don't want to keep priests in the same place for a long period of time because, uh, because then people start looking at them like it'll be a cult of personality. So, we should be a fungible good. We should be transferable around, and it shouldn't make a difference because we're really coming for Jesus, not for the priest, right? That's the exact opposite of the priestly charism of a diocesan priest. And we yes. all knew this, but when you have insidious infiltration in the church, and we all know that's true, and they don't like to admit it, but it's true, then, of course, what are they going to do to destroy the faith of the people, to destroy the relationship between priest and people, transform around a lot? Now, here's what's really interesting. We had in our own diocese, uh, we have these twice a, twice a year. We have these these priestly gatherings, mandatory meetings. All the priests come together, and they usually bring in a speaker. Uh, and one year, one year they brought in a speaker who was like the head priest of that ran a place where priests go when they when they just fall off the wagon through whatever vice it might be, whether it's alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever it might be. Sure. And they go to. Uh, deep retreats, you know, as a lawyer, we would send kids away to, uh, what the heck was it called, um, these, like rehab places. Right. And so that's what it is, rehab for priests. So this guy comes to talk to us, and he said there are three red flags, three things you got to watch out for in the life of a priest, and, and because this is what might put them in a, in a danger zone in a period of vulnerability. So you have to support them, watch over them, take care of them. These are the three things that affect a priest. Firstly, the first five years out of seminary. Because see, when you're in seminary, it's like being in the womb, and you, you're nourished, you, you, your life is completely structured. You have you, your prayer life. Everybody around you is trying to strive to be holier, and, and you're surrounded by all those support systems that, that keep you holy. The, 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 the mass, the prayer times, the, the classes you're learning about, theology and the, the love of Jesus, and, and all your brothers that are around, that you know, like a family, you're just in a great place. But when you get the first five years and you get out, you suddenly realize, they, they told us this, that um, you find out you're not quite as holy as you thought you were because you can do, you kind of, you think you're holy when you're in seminary because you're doing all these holy things. Well, you know, we're human. <laughs> you find out you're not as holy as, as, and you find out that the people aren't that holy either. So it's, it's, a, it's a really big adjustment, the first five years. So be careful, uh, the first five years. The second thing that, that throws, that's a red flag for a priest is when his mother dies. And the reason is, is because we're allowed to love one woman, and allow one woman to love us unconditionally. Uh, and when we lose that, it's a devastating blow. So, you know, they told us this in, in law school, and as a lawyer, they said, be very careful, because when you're counseling, say, uh, a woman that is going through a hard time in her life, uh, perhaps a breakdown in the marital relationship, you listen to your client, and and sometimes they they fall in love with you because oh here's a nice guy he actually listens to me so they they transfer this feeling that they think they should have with their spouse to the person who's 
a nice listener. Uh, I mean, they're paying you handsomely to listen. So you got to pay attention. But uh, so you have to be careful that way. Well, the same thing in any type of counseling situation. Um, and as a priest, you have to be very, very, you cannot let, there has to be a constant barrier. Because if that barrier breaks down, that's when you fall into trouble. So that's why when your mother dies, the one woman that you can love and that you know loves you unconditionally, that's gone. So that's the second red flag. But here's here's what this whole point of the discussion is getting to. It's the third red flag. The third red flag. And this now this is a, the diocese's own speaker telling us this. The third red flag is when you transfer a priest out of his parish. It's like forcing divorce upon someone. It's like you say, saying to a uh, uh, husband, well, okay, uh, it's, well, it's been seven years. It's time for you to go. We're going to divorce you from your wife and kids, and we're <laughs> going to send you over to some other woman. I mean, does that even make sense? Not a bit. The very thought of it is utterly moronic. But I, I heard of a priest that said, uh, in my diocese, he said, well, after I've been in the parish for three to four years, I've given them all I got. So it's time for me to move on. And I'm thinking, buddy, you are not a parish priest. You'd lack the charism of a parish priest, and anything you do that affects us is is danger. So what happened, in, in, the, in my case, and in the case of so many others, not just me, it wasn't just me, uh, we were on this, well, after you've been in a place for a period of time, it's time for you to move on. We've got to move you around. We move around like little pawns on a chessboard. And, and, and thus you destroy, you, you put the priest in that third red flag. And I'm thinking, when this speaker's speaking, I'm thinking, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, are you people even listening to your own speaker? <laughs> it, it was all, oh, boy, oh boy, <laughs> you want to get me angry? There you go. You bring in the speaker that knows what we already knew and you're not even listening to it anyway because it was maybe two years later I got transferred. But that was the saddest day of my life when one by one, the, the, the server had to go get me a purificator because I was crying and my, my nose was running and, uh, as, I'm, as I'm feeding my children. The last time, devastating. devastating wow. Devastating. So, uh, so but, but as I said also, it, it just, by transferring me or anybody else, you destroy donations, vocations, and the faith of people. And they still don't get it because they're still doing it. Shame on them. They should know better. Father, that was an incredibly personal thing that you just shared, and I deeply appreciate it. I'm sure that six-packers will, too. I don't think anyone would disagree that this priest of the living God has the heart of Christ beating in his chest. Never have I heard a priest express love for his parishioners like this priest has. If all priests, or even a majority of them, had Father Altman's capacity for loving his parishioners, the Catholic Church couldn't possibly have the problems she's facing today. I want to share with you a few of the comments people have made to me regarding Father Altman. One person wrote, I love Father Altman. He gives the shepherding that we need. God bless him. Another lady wrote, I am praying one decade of my rosary for Father Altman every day. I would not be making it right now without him. A parishioner of Father's wrote, He calls us dear family and he means it. Finally, this Catholic writes, Listening to Father Altman is my favorite time of the day or night, and then I look forward to the next time I get the chance to listen to him again. May God bless and protect this true shepherd of Christ. In next week's episode, we're going to hear Father tell us more about this journey to the priesthood. I hope you come back for that. 
Learn things about the Catholic faith you never knew in Joe Sixpack's Secrets of the Catholic Faith. There are many essentials to our holy and ancient faith that few modern Catholics know. Those essentials have become, well, secrets, hence the title Secrets of the Catholic Faith. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, is always exciting, never boring, and completely politically incorrect. He never shies away from the so-called untouchable moral issues. With his use of humor and directness, readers and students can never get enough of what he teaches. According to Joe, there isn't one single teaching of the Catholic Church that can't be completely demonstrated to an inquiring mind. Everything can be demonstrated. But the Catholic laity aren't being taught these things. They're being fed pablum when they need and want meat. Secrets of the Catholic Faith is actually exciting, and it will make any Catholic's chest swell with pride. So get your copy of Secrets of the Catholic Faith by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Catholic News Agency. Many Catholics have now heard about how Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris has questioned if Brian Boucher could serve as a federal judge because of his membership in the Knights of Columbus. But that wasn't the only time that the California senator claimed that Christian organizations were involved in discrimination. Oh, no. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Daily Wire. Oregon State Police are now charged with keeping the peace in Portland and its surrounding suburbs have been cross-deputized by the federal government, meaning that those arrested by Oregon State Police officers can be prosecuted by the United States Attorney for crimes stemming from the ongoing unrest, even if the local prosecutor refuses to. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to the Daily Wire. The Trump administration announced that it was cracking down on critical race theory, a far-left anti-American ideology that promotes racial division, from being taught in federal agencies and paid for by federal money. I like that! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to LifeSite News. A Catholic bishop has publicly called out the president and CEO of Catholic Charities Eastern Washington after he recently declared that the Catholic Church is racist because Jesus was white in a video now viewed over 40,000 times. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number One Hats off to Catholic News Agency. A federal court said a Georgia state law that prohibits abortion any time after the detection of a fetal heartbeat is unconstitutional. What? 
You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholicism 101 is the segment where Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, gives you little thumbnail lessons to help you better learn and understand the Catholic faith. Here's this week's Catholicism 101. One day a messenger came into the court of King St. Louis of France, all out of breath from excitement. He exclaimed, Your Majesty, hurry to the church. A great miracle is taking place. What kind of miracle? asked the saintly king. A great miracle. A priest is saying Holy Mass, and after the consecration, instead of a host, there is visible on the altar Jesus Christ himself. Hurry before it disappears. The king remained quiet, which greatly surprised the messenger. Well, isn't your majesty coming? asked the messenger. No, replied the king. Let them who have any doubt about the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist go and see. As for me, even if I saw Jesus on the altar in his visible form and touched him with my hand and heard his voice, I would not be more convinced than I am now that he is present in the consecrated host. My faith is sufficient for me. I need no miracle. King St. Louis' faith is the faith that all Catholics should have, but that's not the case in our modern cynical world. Surveys show that more than 70% of American Catholics in the pew don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Non-Catholics claim the Church's belief in His real presence is merely a Catholic invention. They say there is no scriptural proof of what the Catholic Church teaches. Guess what? They're wrong again. Jesus did indeed talk about it in the New Testament, and we're going to begin by looking at that. The sixth chapter of John begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 men with a mere five loaves of bread and two fish. That evening, Jesus worked yet two more miracles. He sent his apostles across the sea while he went into the hills to pray. Late that night, he came to his apostles walking on the water. As soon as he got into the boat, it ceased being where it was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and was suddenly at their destination. The next morning, the people who had eaten the loaves the previous day arrived, surprised to find Jesus there waiting for them. Of course, they wanted to know how he'd arrived ahead of them since he didn't get into the boat with his apostles. But Jesus cut right to the chase and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus went on to tell them to work for the spiritual food that would get them to heaven instead of the temporal food that spoils. He told them to do this by believing in him. These hard-headed followers from the day before now wanted a sign from him to prove that he was worthy of their belief. They told Jesus that Moses had given their fathers manna from heaven to eat. They wanted to know if he could top that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He went on to explain through verse 40 that he was the bread sent from heaven by the Father. Up to that point, Jesus' followers understood him to be speaking symbolically. Jesus took this misconception away from them right away. He went on to tell them that he was the bread they would have to eat to inherit eternal life. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. The people now understood him to be speaking literally rather than figuratively. The followers' literal understanding of what Jesus said repulsed them. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The apostles had been with him from the beginning. They also understood what he said to be literal. They didn't know how he would do what he said, but they believed that he would eventually show them. Jesus finally explained the how to them at the Last Supper. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, does a man who knows he's about to die earnestly desire to eat what he knows will be his last meal? Of course not. But Jesus earnestly desired to give them his flesh and blood since he first made the promise. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's something else important to note here. The gospel writers never devoted time and energy to writing about the ordinary. They only focused on the extraordinary. John six twenty two through 71 is an entire waste of time and energy if Jesus is merely speaking symbolically. And his language is far from symbolic. The Last Supper narrative is also a waste of time if what is happening there is just a typical Passover meal. Notice that he never said that the bread and wine was to represent his body, nor that it was a symbol of his body. He said it is his body. Definitive. A statement of fact. No analogous phrasing. Christianity makes absolutely no sense without the Most Holy Eucharist. Without it, Christianity is merely nothing more than just another philosophy like the Eastern mystical philosophies. It's nothing more than a philosophy about how to live a better life. But that isn't what Christianity is at all. It's the worship of God Almighty, and our living the Christian life is obedience to that one true and living God. This is just our first look at the Most Holy Eucharist. We'll delve much deeper into it in subsequent segments of Catholicism 101. That's awesome! you have an apostolate you'd like other Catholics to learn about? Maybe you have an e-commerce business and you want to build sales while supporting a Holy Orthodox apostolate. Whatever you want to advertise, the Cantankerous Catholic is your portal to success. 
The Cantankerous Catholic isn't even a year into broadcasting its weekly shows, and we're already listened to in 16 countries, all 50 states, and 101 major cities throughout the U.S. and Canada. Our listener demographics are the most sought after for advertisers. The Cantankerous Catholic avatar is 53% men and 47% women ages 18 to 34. The show's average growth rate through 2019 was 24% per week, and our listeners are Orthodox Catholics who reject heterodox Catholic positions and political correctness. Relative to other broadcasts and online advertising, our rates are extremely cost-effective and inexpensive. You can advertise in each show's show notes, in the recorded episode itself, our weekly newsletter that announces each new episode, all of these media together, or in any combination. So contact us today by filling out the form on the Sponsor Kit page at cantankerouscatholic.com or email Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, directly at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com to learn how you can begin driving traffic to whatever you want to promote while helping to support a worthy, orthodox, and hard-hitting apostolate. Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Francis de Sales. He said, You learn to speak by speaking, to study by studying, to run by running, to work by working. And just so, you have to learn to love by loving. All those who think to learn in any other way deceive themselves. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A young Catholic girl of 20 had fallen in love with a divorced man who lacked character and morality. He ruined her virtue and left her a physical, moral, and spiritual wreck. In her misery, she was brought as a charity patient to a hospital of the sisters who received her kindly. The nun in charge, realizing there was no hope for the bodily recovery of her patient, tried to save her soul. She spoke to the girl about God and heaven and about Christ and his love for sinners. The girl was moved. She seemed to turn to God and away from sin with her whole heart. The nun was as happy as the girl. She gave her a crucifix and asked her to hold it in her hands while she thought about the great love Jesus has for her. One day the man who ruined her showed up. He called her by name. At the sound of his voice, all the unholy desires in the girl came back to life. She made an attempt to leap from the bed. The sister kept the girl from getting up and blocked her view of the man who'd ruined her. Sister pressed the crucifix in the girl's hand, saying, Here's your lover. Look at him. He won't forsake you. But the miserable girl flung the crucifix against the wall and cried out, I don't want this old love. I want him. Then she stretched out her arms and embraced the man who'd ruined her. Almost immediately, the girl died in his arms. The shock was too much for her. At that moment, her wretched soul had to appear before Jesus in judgment. 
Such a death seemed to be a fulfillment of Jesus' words, I go, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Whither I go, you cannot come. The girl's sin was mortal because, A, her action was seriously wrong. She wanted her former life of impurity, which is a serious matter. B, because she knew it was seriously wrong. The sister had instructed her, and she'd begun to amend her ways. And C, she rejected Christ and chose her wicked lover, even though the sister tried to stop her. But it's easy for us to lie to ourselves and justify what we want rather than what's right. You probably ought to keep that in mind. Help your fellow Catholic six-packers. They need to be listening to the Cantankerous Catholic, and you can help them find it better if you leave a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Leaving a review will make it easier for other Catholics to find the Cantankerous Catholic, because reviews cause the podcasting platforms to show up more often. And I thank you in advance for leaving a review. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.